0: MIP. With
1: Massimilia my Matfumo.
0: My Mark
1: Thompson. Make nice it get, get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, No fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the author of Guns Down and a co founder and lead organizer of Guns Down America, and no stranger. To make it plain, obviously, any opportunity we can have to talk about having guns put down is a conversation we need to have. And we also would do well to have some understanding of gun violence in the midst of the pandemic. So a lot to talk about. Igor Volsky of Guns Down America, back with us here on MIP. Hey buddy, how are hey, you? Mark,
2: I'm I'm good. Thanks much for having me. Always such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: And and always some very valuable and useful information when you are here. Um, first of all, and I know Guns Down is nonpartisan, but um, you know the campaign uh, may have yet to speak to the issue of gun violence directly they will no question but it seems a lot of people are excited and i know that many people feel and believe that if trump the nra's buddy is no longer in the white house we will make some progress when it comes to addressing gun violence yeah, look,
2: Mark. I certainly hope uh, that's the case. Uh, as you well know, Americans all across the country tell us that they support uh, tightening gun laws, investing in communities in order to build safer communities, more more just communities. Uh, and I think if this ticket succeeds, that's going to be the ultimate test, both for American voters, but also for these two leaders. Uh, and the question. Uh, And the challenge they're going to have in front of them uh, if they are sworn in in January is can they build uh, a big enough coalition of voices to try to get uh, background checks over the finish line, uh, to try to get maybe an assault weapon ban uh, over the finish line, uh, to significantly fund community programs that work to reduce everyday gun violence. Uh, and have done uh, such a such a powerful job uh, over the last several decades. Um, that that to me uh, is is really a, a challenge uh, because we we know, and, and certainly the vice president knows, that in 2013, even after uh, 20 kids were gunned down at Newtown uh, in Sandy Hook uh, in the Sandy Hook school, 20 kids and six staff members even when there was a sense uh, in the beginning of that fight that maybe this was finally going to be the shooting that was going to actually get those reforms over the finish line, ultimately they failed. Um, And I think part of the reason why they failed and part of the challenge uh, that, uh, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to have is, can you take the issue of gun control out of that partisan political box and can you think about it more broadly as a cultural issue? And can you activate messengers that speak to different Americans on this issue in order to build that coalition to, to actually make progress on that? And, and frankly, you know, Kamala Harris is somebody who has long been a champion of gun reform. And then you'll remember during that presidential primary came out with some really strong Executive actions that she pledged to take uh, if she were elected president, and so I'm heartened by the fact that even as this, uh, uh, these two, if they if they're to succeed, are, are certainly going to work with Congress in order to uh, to pass the reforms we so desperately need in terms of making guns harder to get. That at the same time, I think that they're going to use um, uh, the the office of the presidency to do everything they can uh, to move us in the right direction on this
1: issue. Did everybody hear what Igor just said? Because what he also just did is he does so eloquently and succinctly all the time. He's a consummate organizer. He gave us, he just gave us a list of what we want from any White House, be it Democrat or Republican. And what we have to understand folks that even if Democrats in the White House, or in the Congress or in the Senate, we still have to make our demands and hold them accountable. You know, what I've been saying um, to some of our non, other nonpartisan friends, Igor and even nonprofit friends, that it's really like being in the playoffs um, in a major sport. You want home field advantage, right? And home-field advantage doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want, but at least you have that advantage. If Republicans are in power, the party that completely ignores everything we say, they're on home-field advantage. We're the visitors. But if Democrats are in power who give lip service to agreeing just about everything you just said, but don't always do it, we have home field advantage because it's easier to move and defeat an opponent who's at least on the same field as you are than an opponent that's on another field and that's not your home. You're just a visitor. So I, I think what you've laid out is important. And, you know, I'm talking to people who, if they were to succeed, say this is what we want the first 100 days. And what you just said, let's just add that to the list. 100 days is what we want. This, what is there to talk about, especially now, if Democrats hold the House and if Democrats win the Senate? No more of that uh, blue dog. We have to kind of. I, I think that's a wrap, Igor. This, this is, this is it. Well, and, you know, and we deserve what we're demanding.
2: You know, Mark, you and I uh, first met back in uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine when i spent all of my time covering health care and, and the fight for for obamacare uh, and so i learned at that point that's how i started my career i learned at that point how difficult it is uh to get something as large as obamacare in that case and in this case as large as gun reform over the finish line um and you'll remember in 2009 that uh, the initial measure started in that blue-dawn place of let's find right a, a, some kind of moderate compromise and that that will be good enough to to bring in more moderate members and, and Republican members and then we'll have success. At least that was the operating theory of the Obama administration. It ultimately proved wrong. Um, and I certainly hope that uh, if uh, Biden and, and Harris uh, win this election, they learn from a lot of those lessons uh, in in 2009. Um, Because on one hand, it's a balance, right? You wanna start with strong, bold ideas, the ideas that you feel will actually meet the challenge that we're in. Uh, But at the same time, given just the way our political system works, you do need to build that, that broad coalition. And to me, part of certainly the work that we do and what we've discussed in the past is the importance of business voices in the battle for gun reform. The fact that uh, American businesses are impacted by gun violence every single day, the fact that we just passed the year anniversary of the El Paso shooting in Walmart, Um, all of that, you know, really, uh, I think, um, encourages me. The fact that After that shooting, Walmart announced some major reforms when it comes to the types of guns it sells, when it comes to the kind of political advocacy it's going to work on. Uh, I'm encouraged that businesses in this country are starting to recognize that gun reform are is and should be a business priority in the same way that environmental issues are a business priority in the same way that diversity issues. Are a business priority and so they're going to need to be part uh, of any effort to to reform uh, our gun laws but they also need to start um within their own scope they need to ensure that they're not just talking about black lives mattering that they're actually investing in black and brown communities particularly communities that are disproportionately impacted by gun violence they need to make sure that their hiring practices are such that people who've been uh, in in the criminal uh, legal system are able uh, to find jobs in those companies, are able to advance uh, in those companies. All of us need to work together uh, to to reduce gun violence. Um, And again, it's going to take a big coalition of Um, voices.
1: I'm going to come back to some of the the partisan politics in a minute. But since you went there, folks want to remind you, Um, Guns Down, you go to GunsDownAmerica.org and see a tracking document uh, with regards to businesses and what they're doing, corporate action, uh, when it comes to Black Lives Matter. Meanwhile, though, since last we've talked and we did had a big conversation about Subway, um, we've gotten a victory. In that conversation, correct? Correct. Tell us. Tell us about that.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, listeners and viewers will remember uh, that on uh, May first, I believe it was May first, uh, we saw in a subway in Raleigh, North Carolina, a number. I think it was seven or eight heavily armed individuals uh, carrying uh, assault rifles, carrying handguns, wearing uh, military fatigue, walk into that subway location order some food uh and then on their way out uh one of those individuals uh very openly intimidated a a black family that was just walking uh walking their kids on the street one of them in a photo appeared to to give the hitler salute uh to that couple and you know it was really quite horrific it was part of what, what folks will certainly remember and is still frankly going on, which is the increased visibility of far-right armed extremists marching in our streets, uh, taking part in trying to co-opt rallies and protests. Um, And so when we saw that happening at Subway, and we recognized that Subway restaurants, the Subway Corporation, doesn't have any kind of policy about bringing firearms into their restaurants, we launched a campaign that urged the Subway Corporation to really prioritize the safety of their employees, to to prioritize the safety of their customers, and to ban firearms in their stores, to ask customers not to bring firearms into their stores. Um, we, we did a whole lot of things, Mark. Uh, we uh, tweeted, uh, all kinds of different content of that company. Ask our supporters to do the same. We emailed uh, several individuals at Subway headquarters. We generated thousands and thousands and thousands of emails asking the company uh, to really take this issue seriously. We reached out to their franchise uh, organization that manages all of their different franchisees, all the different all the different restaurants are our, are our, our franchises. Uh, of the Subway brand. Um, We got two senators involved uh, from Connecticut, Senator Murphy and Senator Blumenthal. Uh, Subway is headquartered in Connecticut. Um, And finally, we got a response from Subway and they did in fact uh, change their policy. And for the first time, asked their customers not to bring guns into their stores. Now, you know, to me, that's significant because What it uh, really shows, what it demonstrates is that a large American brand is leaning into this issue in the right way. That they recognize that if they were to stay silent, that if they were to allow uh, the kind of behavior that was happening, particularly with, with white nationalists bringing firearms into their stores, that that that's a real business liability for them. It's a business liability for their brand, um, and and hopefully somewhere in there, you know, they they thought that uh, keeping keeping their community safe was important. And I'm sure it was a part of it. Um, and they finally came to that decision. And to me, though, it's a good decision, but it's a starting point, right? That's a great place to start. Asking people not to bring guns into your stores because we know the presence of a firearm escalates everyday disagreements into larger tragedies. but they can and they should and we will be pushing them to do more we will be asking them to think about what their political donations look like right why is it that they're still providing uh political support for lawmakers who take money uh from the nra we're going to be asking them to use their political relationships uh to make the case to lawmakers, for why tightening gun laws is important to their business, particularly uh, in places where they have high rates of gun violence, where they where they have restaurants. Um, so it's it's a great victory. It follows, you know, a trend uh, of large American corporations beginning to lean into this issue. So we're happy, uh, and we're of course uh, want want them to do more.
1: No, that is that is a big victory. Um And it's reflective of the work that you've been doing. Um, I I wanna go back to the electoral process though. So let let, let me try this on and tell me if what I'm saying makes any sense. And and back to the demands of the anti-gun violence movement being heard immediately if there's change. So black women who have been the backbone of the Democratic Party, made it clear to the nominee, you have to put a black woman on a ticket. We deserve that. We keep the party alive. You've got to do this. So let's talk about the anti-gun violence movement, which you and Guns Down America are part of. One of the single biggest operations um, that the democratic party has had a problem overcoming the past few decades has been the NRA so to the extent that the anti gun violence movement has helped knock down a lot of the strength and credibility of the NRA which now helps to enable more democrats to win i think you had the same argument Um, um, I think you say to the party or to the nominee or whomever, hey, this anti-gun violence movement has helped, even in a nonpartisan fashion, help Democrats get elected because there's an anti-gun violence movement. We've knocked down the NRA significantly. Is that, is what I'm saying, is that an accurate analogy you think?
2: Well, look, Mark. I think that uh, certainly Joe Biden and then Kamala Harris, uh, in Biden's long career uh, in Washington uh, and in Harris's career, both in Washington and in California, I think what's clear is that these two uh, are really, really prioritize this issue in, the, in a serious way. Uh, we saw. Uh, In in Biden's background, the leadership role he played uh, in enacting uh, the background check law of 1993, what's commonly referred to as as the Brady law. Um, And, you know, and and certainly uh, Harris herself, uh, both uh, in the Senate um, and in her uh, career uh, as attorney general in California and as a presidential candidate, uh, has has prioritized all all of these issues so i'm you know I'm fairly comfortable and, and confident in, in feeling that um, are, if they are to be successful in january uh, that those issues uh, are are going to move to the to the top of uh, of the list in terms of things they're they're going to want to focus on. Now, in terms of the nRA and and the implosion that we've seen um, over the last several months you know part of that uh is really the result of the incredible work uh that our movement and many of the of the leaders uh, in our movement uh, have been doing for really decades and decades and decades um in uh you know um in, in in shining a light not only uh to the harm that this organization this lobby does Uh, in terms of how they influence politics and the kinds of policies that they oppose, but also how corrupt the NRA uh, has become. And that, Mark, is really the focus of uh, the lawsuit that was filed just last week uh, by the New York State Attorney General, which really charged top NRA leaders, including Wayne LaPierre and some of his top lieutenants with an incredible amount of corruption. Corruption that the lawsuit alleges uh, violates uh, IRS guidelines in terms of how you need to run a nonprofit, but also New York State uh, law. Uh, And the reason why that connection is there is because in 1871, I believe is the year, uh, the NRA chartered itself in New York State It is still chartered there, and so it's subject uh, to those regulations.
1: Um, You have read the whole document. That was my next (laughs) question. Um, Give us a a snapshot, if you would, Igor, about some of the things um, that you found in that lawsuit and, and why their behavior is so egregious.
2: You know, I have been uh, following very closely uh, the reporting on the NRA corruption, uh, which, by the way, uh, an organization called the Trace, which reports on gun violence, uh, has been breaking for for years now, um, and so a lot of credit really uh, goes to them on this. So, you know, I thought when I first started reading these 169 pages that came out uh, last week. I thought I was, I, I was pretty familiar with the kind of shenanigans that go on. But I have to tell you, Mark, and I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying this, I was absolutely shocked uh, when I read these kinds of allegations. So we've known for a long time that there was a lot of self-dealing going on, that top NRA leaders were taking a lot of the dues that NRA members were paying And we're spending them on all kinds of perks like private flights, uh, and, 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 and homes, uh, and suits, uh, and all fancy suits, uh, and all, and and those kinds of things. But what the lawsuit revealed is just how pervasive that corruption was. So to give you an example, the NRA over, I think, a three or four year period paid Wayne Lapierre's private travel agent over $13 million. Mm. That's just to the travel agent, $13 million. Um, they used private travel, private airfare, not just for Wayne Lapierre to get from event to event, but also for Lapierre's family members, even when Lapierre himself wasn't on the flight. So LaPierre's niece and her family traveled by private plane, paid for by NRA members. Um, over a course of several years, uh, the NRA reimbursed Wayne LaPierre uh, millions of dollars for private expenses that he may have incurred. This includes thousands of dollars in fancy gifts that he gave to business associates and to family members. Now, the IRS limit on a gift you could expense uh, to, to, to some kind of business uh, relationship is $25. Um, these gifts that he was giving out to folks and then getting reimbursed for are even are, are, are far far exceed that amount, obviously. Uh, let me just say the most egregious thing as I was reading it, and that is the post-employment contracts that NRA leaders would set up for themselves and the way these would work Mark is when an NRA and a favored NRA leader or board member by the way would retire or resign from the NRA Wayne LaPierre would arrange special agreements consulting contracts for those individuals to the tune of 30 to forty five thousand dollars a month, the individual would retire from the NRA officially and then would begin to receive thirty to forty thousand dollar payments every single month for doing basically zero work. There was no oversight of any work they were doing. there was no product they were producing. They maybe were consulting on one or two things. But the lawsuit makes it fairly clear that this money was just given to them for years and years and years after they left the organization. Wayne LaPierre himself had a special contract that said that if he were to either retire from the NRA or if he didn't win um, a re-election to remain the chief of the NRA, that he would have a post-employment contract of a million dollars a year uh, for a period of five or 10 years after he left the organization. I mean, you really can't make this stuff up. And what it ultimately exposes, and what I hope is clear to NRA members is that this team of leaders, so to speak, exploit. The fears of gun confiscation and they're coming for your gun in order to, uh, milk membership dollars from, from, from Americans around the country and would then use those dollars not to teach about responsible gun ownership or talk about safe storage or any of that kind of stuff. What's clear is that they used a whole lot of that money to enrich themselves, to line their pockets. And it's so great to see the uh, New York attorney general finally hold them to account.
1: And I know we saw when she did that, her people uh, uh, nominated her for vice president. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, no, that, man. And, and what you just laid out right now You're right. That's fraud. I mean, you're exploiting people's fears when really what you're doing is taking people's money to hook up your friends and family. I mean, that's straight fraud, slush, whatever you want to call it. I wonder, though, do we have a sense or have we seen any reactions from NRA members or NRA supporters after hearing this news? Have we gotten any indication that there's been any revelatory behavior or, or no?
2: Well, Mark, it's hard to tell, right? Um, I, I don't have a great relationship with, with NRA members, and I haven't seen a lot of reporting, right? Yeah. But look, there are certainly individuals who, who I know, who I've spoken with, who for years have criticized Both the way the NRA operates in terms of their fiduciary responsibility, which is right what the philosophy is about, but also the way they operate politically. These are individuals. Some of them were former high-ranking NRA leaders who are frankly disgusted by what this organization has become. The problem is, and the problem always has been, is how do you convince those folks folks who you know are kind of part of gun culture but have become disgusted and disillusioned by gun politics how do you get them to begin organizing their fellow gun owners to speak out not only against the abuses uh, the financial abuses of the NRA the ones we discussed but also about how they've perverted our politics into this you know Uh, us versus them, and we can't give an inch kind of dynamic that we've seen around the country. I don't know how to push those individuals to go from beyond just, you know, complaining to me about, oh my God, this is so horrible, and actually taking a leadership role in organizing gun owners who tell pollsters all the time that they support gun reform by some Overwhelming majority number and actually kind of channel them into powerful political voices and, and coalitions. It's hard because you have to go against the grain, right, in those communities in, in building up um, that kind of different perspective. And so, look, I'm still hopeful that some of these conversations that I'm having are going to produce some actual progress. And that's what, what's going to result from. The kind of the melting away of some of the NRA's power are new leaders, more modern leaders who see that there's room uh, for uh, for gun reform in this country. But, you know, millions of dollars have been spent over the last several decades in trying to identify those leaders. None have successfully uh, created an alternative to the gun lobby. Uh, but you know, uh, I will keep on plugging away at it, and many people are, uh, many other people are as
1: well. Well, that's good to know, and and obviously, too, the uh, the struggle continues on that front. Um, one more thing, we we want to address some information you shared with your uh, followers across 20 major cities. The murder rate at the end of June was on average 37% higher than it was at the end of May, though uh, nationally crime remains at or near a generational low. Still many of the recent shootings have involved incidents of random angry violence or disputes between strangers that left someone dead. So what's going on?
2: Well, Mark, this is part of a larger pattern uh, that we've seen all this year uh, of gun violence uh, increasing. What you are talking about is the kind of everyday gun violence that we see in some of our major cities uh, in New York, where, where I know you are, there's been about a 26% increase um, in gun violence. We've seen similar increases in Milwaukee and in Kansas City. And if you talk to uh, some of the leaders in those cities, as, as I have, what has become clear is that, you know, generally speaking, everyday gun violence is perpetrated by a small number of individuals that criminologists, that law enforcement officials, that community members can literally identify. Uh, It's about 0.1 or 0.01% of the population, very small number of people who perpetrate Uh, gun violence and kind of keep that cycle of gun violence uh, moving forward. And so that's why there's been such a focus in funding community initiatives uh, that help uh, break the cycle of gun violence, uh, work with individuals who are most likely to either commit gun violence or be the victims of gun violence, and just offer them uh, employment opportunities, other kinds of social services so that you can pull people out of uh, the the cycle of of gun violence. And that work is obviously incredibly uh, ongoing, and as I've said, I think should really be a priority in any kind of conversation about gun reform on the national stage. But what's happening now in cities across the country is not only are you seeing uh, a spike in that kind of uh, everyday gun violence, but as... uh, What we've seen at least anecdotally, because the data on this is so crappy, is that you are seeing individuals, and this is particularly true in Kansas City from the reporting, who don't have any kind of criminal record uh, that aren't the kind of perpetrators of everyday gun violence that we're familiar with, simply escalating disagreements into violent confrontation. And that what has that's what has been uh, so incredibly heartbreaking to see that it's some combination of the general mental stress of uh, the pandemic, the economic uh, disintegration that many Americans are feeling, uh, the job loss, all of the stresses, the housing insecurity, the food insecurity, all of those factors are coming together uh, in order to. Uh, And are having the effect of increasing gun violence in our major cities. What we've argued, um, and what so many others in our movement are calling for, is direct investment in the communities that have been hit most by one, COVID, and two, this spike of gun violence. That when you think about, when Congress thinks about COVID relief or COVID stimulus or whatever you want to call it, that directly investing in communities and directly investing in community-based violence intervention programs is just so essential to reducing gun violence uh, across the board. And and I really hope that if if and when uh, the congressional negotiations reopen um, about getting another stimulus bill in place, that People look around at what's going on in some of our major cities and really uh, begin investing um, in communities and, and have that as a centerpiece of the kind of stimulus we want to see. Uh, Senator Cory Booker, uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth uh, have really led the charge in the Senate um, uh, on, on this piece. Um, and I hope that that all of us uh, can play a role in urging our elected officials to 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 really address uh, the rise in gun violence um, as part of what we need uh, to help ourselves, to help our communities during this period of COVID.
1: Just hearing you talk, Igor, as we go, I think a new White House, remember how they used, during the whole drug thing, they kept talking about a drug czar. This White House, this new White House should have a gun policy czar. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, and that's that's, uh, part, that's you know I think you're absolutely right. It's going to show that uh, gun reform is a real priority uh, for for this administration. It's something that uh, many organizations have have called for. Um, and 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 frankly, you know, you need somebody who is able to think about this issue as an extension of public health. Uh, that uh, many of the uh, predeterminants of gun violence are the kind of underlining uh, factors that we all can, can can point to, right? Unemployment and underemployment, lack of access to health care, uh, food insecurity, housing insecurity, that those are the reasons why people pick up a gun in the first place in, in the context of everyday gun violence, which is most of the gun violence in this country. And so you know, to kind of bring us full circle, uh, from, from what I've heard, uh, uh, Senator Harris talk about, from what I've heard, uh, Vice President Joe Biden talk about is that they, they really get that that is the kind of holistic approach you need, uh, to really tackle this issue in a serious way, right? That we need a combination of strengthening our gun laws and investing in Uh, our communities, and investing in uh, uh, improving those indicators that I talked about, those underlining um, indicators of gun violence that you need both in order to really tackle this problem.
1: So as I am often texting with Joe and with Kamala, I'm going to say that they need to have a gun policies are, if they're successful in winning the White House and that that gun policies are, should be Igor Volsky. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's what I'm exactly gonna do. So I'll let you know if you hear about that. Yeah, let me know, let me know. I started it, okay. <laughs> Guns down America, folks. And also look at the scorecard when it comes to corporate action on Black Lives Matter. Guns down America. Very interesting, that the research that Igor has done on that. I don't know anyone else uh, that's done that, frankly, Um, and and taken a hard and um, tangible look at that. So, um, folks, please uh, take a look at that as well yourselves. GunsDownAmerica.org. And be involved in the movement. Igor is more polite than I am. But (laughs) what I'm saying is the, the movement, over time, has helped to hobble the NRA and to the extent that that has helped one party regain its footing, that part, and Igor is right, the records suggest that this one party would do that. But we just want to make sure If we must remind people we will do just that. Igor, appreciate you, buddy.
2: Thank you, Mark.
1: Always a pleasure. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain.